Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill. This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 99 recorded February 18th, 2011. But dialing to jail. Hi, folks. It's Denise Howell, and we're here for Twill, episode 99. It's February 18, 2011, and we're thrilled that you've joined us. We've got a great show for you here today. We have all kinds of really fun and interesting things to talk about. But first, I want to welcome our panel. Welcoming back to the show, Kevin Thompson from Davis McGrath in Chicago and Cyber Law Central, his excellent blog. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Denise. Thanks for having me back. I much appreciate it. It's great to see you. Um, also joining us for a return visit to Twill is Eric Heels from the Clock Tower Law Group in Maynard, Massachusetts, our favorite MIT engineer turned lawyer. Hi, how you doing? Hi, De- Hi, Denise. Thanks for having me again. Great to see you again, Eric. And Likewise. joining us, sure. Joining us again is Evan Brown from Chicago, Hinshaw and Culbertson, and internetcases.com, his blog. Hi, Evan. How's it going? It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. Wonderful to have uh, Chicago once again so well represented on the show. And we've got uh, Massachusetts <laughs> and California. So we're kind of covering the country as well as we can. Right on. And uh, also yeah. covering the, the country. Our, uh, I, I had thrown in um, a story that I think, uh, Evan, tell me if they triggered your coming up with the rest of these uh, super fun sort of the Darwin Awards of Law and Technology, I'm going to start out the show with here. Huh. Um, uh, the one that I threw in had to do with a juror in California who uh, was ordered by a judge to turn over his Facebook posts that he made during a trial. There was a conviction during a trial. It was a criminal trial involving gang members. Um and apparently the juror was just there posting away on Facebook. Oh, this evidence is so boring. This trial is just deadly dull. La, la, la. So that's the kind of thing that actually can uh, result in a mistrial and overturn convictions. So the judge ordered him to turn those things over. And uh, he'll face contempt if he doesn't actually comply. So um, that that was just sort of one of those, oops, you know, shouldn't be doing that if you're a juror. And uh, also, I thought it was interesting uh, that, you know, we always are talking about stories on the show, episodes, incidents on this show where uh, people are going after the actual service provider to get at the information. Um, The judge here has contempt power over this uh, juror. So there's no need to get Facebook involved in this. He can just uh, compel the juror to give over the um, information that the judge is looking for. Uh, Any thoughts on this one, Kevin? Well, I think it's the standard, uh, you know, be careful what you post online. Goodness, uh, if you're going to be a juror these days, uh, you got to be really careful because uh, uh, judges and and, uh, all the people associated with the cases are certainly going to be looking to see what you do. Yeah, I think this is the kind of thing that jurors are getting instructed about routinely these days. But, you know, maybe it's an object lesson in how 
jurors might not listen very closely or or really care too much about the jury instructions they receive. And uh, they're not ready, willing, or able to give up the the things that they do technologically just because they're sitting on a jury. Uh, Eric, what do you think? Well, I think if you're uh, on a jury, uh, you know, to second what Kevin said, it's, you know, pretty much do what the judge tells you to do and don't do what he tells you not to do. So, <laughs> yeah, the Darwin, the Darwin Awards, I think, is appropriate for this particular case. It seems to be an easy one. Uh, right. Um, Evan, any thoughts about uh, the judge going straight to the source of the um, information rather than going to the provider? For sure, you got to listen to what the judge says and do what the judge tells you to do and, 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 and all of that. And, and um, it, it sounds like in this case, it's it's much more serious. I mean, this was a criminal trial. I know that we mm-hmm. saw something from Detroit a few months ago where that juror posted something on, uh, it was either on Facebook or Twitter talking about her experience and the, the judge made her write an essay or something like that. Do you remember that? situation. It no, was, that one's actually escaping my mind, but what a good uh, what a good call on the judge's and, part. And I think that was a civil case. And one of the defense attorney's uh, sons actually found the the information uh, and and brought it to the to the and brought it to his dad's attention, who then brought it to the court's attention. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's the it, it it's a general policy that you should do what the judge tells you. But there's a certain, um, I guess, certain part of me who would think, well, you know, do we always just want to follow policies because they are what they are? All the guy did here, or at least all this, you know, short article that we have about it here, he just he just posted that the evidence was boring. You know, big deal. <laughs> you know, so right. I'm sure the evidence was very boring. Does that really mean that there was some grand, terrible miscarriage of justice here? I don't know. But, you know, I guess we just got to listen to what the judges say and leave it at that. Yeah, I think sure. I think that's the kind of thing that can routinely result in a mistrial. Though I mean, if you're if it's boring, that means the juror isn't engaged, isn't paying attention, isn't properly weighing what's going on. I don't know. You could argue about it in court, but at least that yeah. gives them a basis to talk about something. Kevin, you were going to say? Oh, I was just going to say that um, uh, in the IRC room, uh, Socrates had a point mm. about uh, the um, uh, fully informed jury concept. Yeah, what is that? Um, well, just that uh, juries uh, should sh- sh- be allowed to research things as, as needed. Um, and in, in response to that, I-, I would certainly point out that our jury system is set up such that if they do have a question, they have an avenue for that. They don't have to go to the Internet. They go to the judge and say, look, we need more information on this point. Look, we need – I don't understand this point. Tell me what this is. And, you know, those things are already built into, into our jury system, and we don't have to have people going online and perhaps looking at the wrong information. I mean, the Lord knows, I mean, who knows what uh, is actually out there on uh, uh, Wikipedia. I mean, so somebody could have posted something that was actually incorrect. And so that, that's why people should actually be following the right procedure and doing what the judge tells them to do. And, and when they've got a question, they bring it to the judge. Yeah, this guy would have been out of luck, though. What are you going to do? Go to the judge and say, judge, I'm bored to death. Can we have the lawyer spice things up a bit? <laughs> I don't know. Right. You know. <laughs> Not too much they can do. Okay, so we, ha- we have some more uh, Darwin Awards of legal technology uh, over there in the UK where, uh, where people use the word netter to refer to um, your bit off your rocker or crazy. 
uh, there was a gentleman texting back and forth, and I don't know if you could really call either of these folks gentlemen, um, given what ultimately happened. But they're having a text message exchange, and the autocorrect feature on one of their phones changed mutter with an M in one of their messages to nutter causing the other one to take grave offense. And uh, things <laughs> sort of went south from there. Uh, the the first guy shows up at the second guy's house and uh, a stabbing ensues because he's so incensed at having been called a nutter. Uh, Evan, you, you tossed this one to us. I, there's no indication what phone or what autocorrect uh, changed mutter from nutter because mutter seems like a perfectly valid uh, use of the language that doesn't require an autocorrect. Um, how about this one? Not too much. This is uh, maybe uh, not a, a Darwin Award so much as, you know, poor guy. Nobody pays too close attention to these autocorrect things. We've all been bitten by them. Right. I have a feeling that these guys could have used some therapy long before, uh, mm. you know, this this act of, of violence went down. There there has to be so much more to it than 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 just getting mad, being called a nutter instead of a, a, a mutter. And the interesting thing is that the guy who uh, did the killing is the one who called the guy the bad name. It wasn't that he that he got so mad for being called that and then he ended up killing the guy. It, you know, so there was just clearly some some bad stuff going on, uh, right? You know, in the whole in the whole context for all this. And um, I, I I sent in you know to you this story, and then there were a couple of other stories. It was just it was so strange. Just one day this week, I think it was Wednesday, maybe I was reading my uh, news feeds, and um, you know I saw three different stories that really had a, a certain theme about them. One was this one. Oh yeah, one. no, we're going to talk about them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so, I mean, the, the, the theme being, and, you know, and we'll, we'll drill down and get into some detail about these is just, you know, it's so wacky how mobile communications can really um, kind of catch up on you and take you by surprise and, and fill in a certain niche of your life that you didn't know was there. Uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're going to be doing bad stuff, if you're, if you're carrying a cell phone or, you know, going to be sending text messages, you got to be a little more, um, my new favorite word is vigilant. Cross between vigilant. <laughs> that sounds uh, like a Bushism. Is that right. one you right. coined yourself? Yeah, no, it's uh, actually I, I thank uh, Doug Hofstadter. I've been reading a lot of his stuff lately, and he gave a great talk um, that I was watching on YouTube the other night um, about uh, about analogies and 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 consciousness and and ta and language and all that stuff. And so it's interesting how people can mix up words and you can often get a real meaning out of it. But I just really love that one because it, it seems to have such a clear uh, import to it. So I'm, I'm trying to use that as much as I can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so Kevin, you think, that, I mean, obviously, I guess the lesson from this one is if uh, you're the kind of person who wanders around uh, packing a knife and your friends do too, uh, you should pay special attention to autocorrect. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Uh, maybe next time get a phone with uh, better autocorrect features. <laughs> good, 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 good Lord. I mean, um, if, if you're going to be fighting over that, I mean, Evan's right. I mean, obviously there's something else going on here. Um, you know, perhaps this is just the, the, the final straw and an ongoing dispute between these two. Who knows, really? But, um, you know, all, all this, this is merely what started the fight. But mm. uh, good Lord. Kind of straw that broke the camel's back, no doubt. Uh, Eric, any any final ruminations on this bit of entertainment? 
Well, I think this is another good example of, of where those that are predisposed to demonizing technology are just going to use this as another example, like to say, see, cell phones and technology are, are evil, and this is an example of the bad things that, that, that can occur. And, uh, you know, I would argue that, uh, you know, technology and the Internet are, are they just are, and they can be used for, uh, for good or, uh, or for evil. So, uh, but, you know, people like to believe what they like to believe. I know. There was a little homunculus in that uh, predictive text really screwing with that guy's life. I have a feeling that, you know, he saw he saw mutter and wanted to make it nutter. There was some there was some intent there. It was, there it was that is that evil technology. Maybe it's Watson. <laughs> maybe maybe he's moved. It has moved on from uh, Jeopardy <laughs> to um, mm. to subtly manipulating people's cell phone text. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, okay, so um, further along these lines, there's a co- there are a couple of more of these where um, the text messaging or other uh, mobile communication means wound up as evidence in the case. Um, let's see. Uh, here, I think this one was in Florida, Evan. Um, lots of funny things happen yeah, in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This sure. uh, there there was a uh, jilted boyfriend, I believe he was, uh, being broken up with, who um, in a heat of passion decided to uh, off his girlfriend who was breaking up with him. But to cover his tracks, he made off with her cell phone. It was never recovered after the killing, and then sent a text message to a mutual friend of theirs after she was already. Um, no longer with us. Uh, I guess trying to indicate, you know, I mean, change the time of death or, or I don't, I can't really fathom what the reasoning would have been, but he used her phone to send a test, text message and used um, an acronym in the text GTG, good to go, which the mutual friend, I guess, discerned that this is something that uh, the guy used, but not the girl. And so um, it's not real clear from the story, but I think that that must have been, um, you know, how people were tipped off or, or at least it was evidence in, in the trial that, uh, that the killer had actually done this crime. Um, Evan, what do, you, what do you think of this one? Yeah, uh, this one happened in Syracuse, New York. There's that oh, there other story that we'll talk about. That's that's the there's there's plenty of it that goes on in Florida for us to talk mm. about. So we got one to there. Yeah, but this one was in in New York. Yeah, this is interesting. And um, what happened here is, I guess the guy was confronted with this evidence and realized that things weren't looking as good for him, and he entered a guilty plea. So this didn't actually make it into anything mm. at at trial here. But wow, talk about a couple of of layers of abstraction for the meaningfulness of this information here. And using as using it as evidence, it wasn't just you know merely something forensic that came about from the the text messaging, um, but it was it was you know the use of this particular nomenclature to really betray the guy to say that it was him and not you know his girlfriend. I mean, clearly he was just trying to obfuscate things and and you know confuse investigators as to where this uh, girl that he had just murdered might have been or when she died or or whatever. So. Um, the, yeah, the thing I thought was interesting about that was how much interpretation had to go into this. So much use of electronic evidence like this is just to to place, um, you know, just just very much based on the the data itself. But this, you know, you had to look at those those layers of meanings and, and customs uh, for how he was using this this acronym. That's what I found intriguing. Right. Just imagine being the friend, and you get this creepy message, and you go, "Wait a second." Uh, the, 
girl yeah. doesn't use that. The guy does. Uh, right. um, Kevin, mm. any thoughts? Well, I had two thoughts. First, uh, one was, uh, I think I saw a similar thing on an episode of CSI once, and it didn't work in a, <laughs> for the person in that case either. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing, too, is is uh, uh, the, the major way that uh, this was found out was through someone reading a text and, and getting a sense for somebody's personality merely mm-hmm. through an online post, uh, or in this case, a text. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Three that's certainly something worth, worth talking to. Well, so, yeah. so certainly the, a, a distinctive phrase, uh, something mm-hmm. that she would never use. But that's something like here we are interacting online on Skype. Uh, and there's a lot of other people that I interact with uh, only solely by Twitter. And, you know, would they, you know, get, get a feel for who I am and, and who oh, the things that I can say and the things that only I would say, but merely by what I would say on Twitter uh, or other social media. And right. I think that's it's a really interesting question today. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a good reminder that these sort of shorthand uh, communication forms that we get into if we use technology frequently are, are not necessarily what um, the rest of the world uses. And, uh, you know, you get so used to them, but um, they can be very identifying. Eric, what do you think? Uh, sort of reminds me about when I had shoulder surgery and I was under uh, anesthesia and I'm telling jokes while I'm under anesthesia. I have no memory of the jokes that I was telling. And then afterwards, people t- told me the jokes that I was telling. And I said, well, I, I have no memory of that, but that's, that certainly sounds like me. Mm-hmm. Were they good jokes? <laughs> uh, they're always good jokes. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so All I right. think it's only, yeah, I think it's just a matter of time before somebody, uh, you know, is able to successfully uh, use the technology. I mean, the the the, the criminals are getting smarter, and uh, you know this one is probably uh, you know, more smarter than the one in the first example. But uh, it's just a matter of time before they they actually fool somebody. And I like right. what you said, Kevin, about the, you know getting to know someone's personality from this. You know, like and you use the example of, of of Twitter. And one way that I have thought of Twitter for a long time, even way back. Uh, in the early days is, you know, I really picked up on someone's description of uh, using Twitter as cultivating in yourself an ambient awareness of what's going on uh, around you. But another real catch or another term that that resonated with me for describing this is a certain gestalt, you know, a certain image that appears uh about, you know, particular members in your social network that you can get from, you know, little pieces of information, tiny little pieces of information, you start, you start to develop a certain image of someone over that time. And, you know, Denise, what you said, you know, it is just three, three characters here. Um, you know, here on Skype, we are uh, communicating our gestalts, you know, within millions and millions of bits. Uh, but this was just one where it was, you know, just uh, three characters. And so it really is, is fascinating. Yeah convinced him to plead guilty, as you point out. All right. Well, I don't know if this criminal was necessarily very smart. And it's it's so, you know, I have um, a real sort of inner conflict and in having a smile on my face as I talk about all this murder and mayhem. But this gentleman appears to have butts, butt dialed himself to jail or uh, to um, a life <laughs> sentence in jail, no less, and almost um, almost the death sentence. Uh, because there was a lot of deliberation based on this voicemail that was left in the middle of a murder. And this was our Florida story. It's here at tampabay.com. 
that uh, apparently here was a, a person um, who was in the midst of stabbing his wife and uh, somehow or another his phone must have, they don't really go into the details of how this happened, but must have auto-dialed in the heat of the struggle or whatever, perhaps the last number that he had dialed, uh, his wife. And uh, nobody knew this right away, but uh, apparently, um, I think it was her sister, yes, the victim's sister, checked the messages on her cell phone after the fact and found, you know, much to her horror, uh, that there was an audio recording of what was going on during the murder. Um, so this all came into evidence in the trial as um, evidence of premeditation because uh, he was um, telling her during the process that he was going, he was about to kill her. Um, she had just confessed uh, to having cheated on him. So heat of passion, but... Uh, Thanks to his phone, it all got recorded and came into evidence and uh, was a big factor as the prosecution was urging um, first-degree murder and uh, not just a life sentence, but the death sentence. Um, Evan, any uh, insights about this one? Yeah, I mean, these are all very, very sad cases. And um, one thought that I would have about this would be a reminder to uh, the authorities who are investigating crimes. Uh, you know, I'm sure that most detectives and investigators in most police departments are very thorough, you know, to check all of these sources, you know, this, this electronically stored information in the, in the voicemail. So if anything, it's a reminder of all the, uh, you know, remote places that evidence for a crime can be found, not just, you know, in where the yellow crime scene uh, tape uh, is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eric, how about this notion that our, our phones can sort of, I, I don't know about you, but I have had my phone kick on and start dialing somebody, um, you know, when it has not been in my pocket, when it has not been in contact with anything else. It's almost like, you know, it's Watson again, uh, deciding that it's going to use its free time to um, manipulate our technology. Um, it, what do you think about the impact of this on society? Yeah, and I think there's even a, a, a Facebook group for I, mm -hmm. I feel my phone ringing, but it's not actually ringing <laughs> sort of sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, I mean, it's just another one of the uh, it's just another one of the risks of technology. There was a there was a digest in the early 90s called the Risks Digest that talked about this, this particular thing and the risks of technology and uh, the sorts of things that can happen. You know, as I as I read this story um, in the uh, uh Tampa Bay, uh, Tampa Bay .com website, you know, mm -hmm. what's, what struck me, you know, besides sort of the, um, you know, you know, the luck that they had in, in discovering this, this information was, you know, how easy would this sort of thing be to, uh, to fake and how easy would it be to set somebody up with, uh, uh, with a recording? Cause our, our, our voices are all being recorded right now. It would be, uh, relatively easy to patch together pieces of voice and, uh, you know, and, and plant a recording. Um, that would make a really good movie. Yeah, that sort of combines our last story with this one. <laughs> Someone trying to doctor up evidence or try and cover their tracks could could use a uh, mistaken voicemail to, you know, could could create one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, given given enough technological tools, um, so given that. 
Kevin, do you think that uh, all the forensic folks who help out during trial are prepared to deal with the various manipulations that technology can enable? Uh, I, having known some uh, forensic people, I can cer certainly say that, uh, uh, you know, g given the, the right set of clues that they need to look for that, I think uh, that that certainly is something that they can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it um, in here, you know, I think uh, they're able to go to the uh, the provider and you know get a a clear copy of the the, the cell message from uh, from the cell phone company. Um, but beyond that, otherwise, uh, you know, you're into um, you know some other potential contacts could be. Uh, a, a in which uh, uh, somebody is uh, accused of saying something and it's uh, doctored up, uh, you know, to make it sound bad for the the political candidate or something like that, uh, some sort of a smear campaign. And uh, uh, at, at that point, then, um, it's uh, the, the, the in my particular hypothetical, I think, uh, you know, it would certainly depend on whether or not they, you know, reasonably could figure all that out, you know, as to whether or not... Uh, this happened put together from multiple separate recordings. Well, I think all our Twit audio engineers probably, you know, could make a little money on the side by offering up their expertise. <laughs> I'm in, sure uh, too. Evaluating the the yeah. legitimacy of various recordings and whether they've been doctored up or not. Sybil mm -hmm. in IRC. <laughs> yes, I'm getting dollar signs in in the Skype chat back at me from. <laughs> From Burke in the studio, <laughs> or maybe that was John. Anyway, uh, Sybil in IRC says uh, this makes the uh, ha gives the hackers man in the middle attack a whole new meaning. I'm not sure I know what the man in the middle attack is, but um, for those of you who do, uh, I'm sure well, that that's a pithy observation. Anyone know what uh, Sybil is referring to with that? It, we're if well, Eric Hills were exactly in this particular context. Little deer in the headlights, all the hackers yeah. can come get us with that now because we don't know what it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I, I know what a man in the middle attack is, but exactly its reference to this particular context is another matter. All right. Well, it, it educate us so that, that uh, we're, we're equipped. Well, a to man in the middle attack is, is somebody like um, you're, you're at the Starbucks and you connect to what you think is the Starbucks Wi-Fi, but it turns out to be the guy in the corner and uh, he acts as the man in the middle. And uh, you know, relays your requests on, and you you think you are uh, you know connecting out uh, properly in a secure fashion, but in all reality, uh, the man in the middle is is capturing everything that goes on in uh, your particular uh, transaction. Got it. Okay, I just never heard that. I've I've heard of obviously that situation, but uh, not heard. Of I was thinking about Michael Jackson's man in the mirror. Securely now. <laughs> right, right. The man in the mirror in the middle. All right. Well, yeah. uh, someone who oh. was uh, in the mirror at home, perhaps, when um, uh, they were busy communicating with their fellow ambulance employer employees. Uh, this is something we've uh, talked about on the show a couple of times. Um, there were some activities going on for this ambulance company where their employees were uh, using Facebook to communicate with each other off hours and using their own technology. Um, one of the employees was fired and uh, the company cited the company's blogging policy or uh, online communication policy 
as the basis for this because you weren't supposed to badmouth the company per that policy in any sort of online way. Um, the NRLB, the Natural, National Labor Relations Board, got involved and said uh, this kind of a restrictive policy we fear violates um, the protections that are in place for employees to be able to organize and unionize, etc. And so this was um, coming down the pike for a decision by the NLRB, uh, and the party settled. So um, that's just sort of the update in this case that uh, has been settled. There's no disclosure about what the terms of the settlement were, but it means that we're not going to get a definitive statement from the NLRB about this. Uh, But it's interesting in any event that uh, they got involved and that they raised a red flag about this kind of activity. Um, And it certainly gave an opportunity to a lot of employment lawyers to send out a whole round of alerts and uh, warnings to their clients that they've got to review their blogging and communications policies to make sure that they're not um, inadvertently treading on their employees' rights uh, as far as what the labor laws uh, provide and require. Um, Evan, we've we've been through this. Do you uh, have any thoughts now that the case has settled? And uh, um, are you surprised that the parties worked this out on their own? No, I talked to some labor and employment lawyers here at my firm about this. And most matters in this procedural posture do settle. Uh, so it's no surprise or certainly not an anomaly that it, that it did settle. Um, and, and so I, I don't think there's really too much new under the sun uh, in all of this, um, other than it being kind of a, an indication uh, of, you know, a certain telegraphing of what the NLRB uh, thinks about uh, all of this. And so uh, perhaps from a policy standpoint, um, by doing this, they, they're just kind of putting the issue out there so that employers can take notice, uh, do some things about this, uh, recognize that, um, you know, this, these types of communications are, can, can present real issues. And, and so maybe there is a a real pragmatic purpose to all of those alerts that, that lawyers would send out in, in response to all this, all these, you know, click here to download a PDF copy of our most recent, uh, alert type of things. Yes, exactly. don't you love those? So um, here's an update on Man in the Middle from Sybil and J.D. Ankenyan in IRC. Uh, so uh, what Sybil had in mind is that the man in the middle would become more proactive not instead of just uh, intercepting the data, would actually insert messages um, and uh, fake them. And uh, the additional comment there is that... Uh, uh, corporations may be engaged in um, paying hackers large sums of money to um, do this in sort of a corporate espionage kind of way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the danger is the government might be able to do this kind of thing as well. So, um, yeah, it is it is a concern and uh, and scary when you think about, you know, how it happens without paying money to hackers just, you know, from... Uh, the technology mm-hmm. itself kind of taking things in, mm-hmm. into its own hands. Um, so, uh, and the, uh, the labor case, the ambulance case, um, Eric, are you um, thinking that there's a mad scramble to um, adopt uh, policies so that it's clear that um, what, what this leaves open is if you're using um, corporate assets on corporate time and maybe disclosing um, confidential information, I think it would be a different kind of outcome than uh, if you're off hours complaining about 
the company. Uh, is that your impression too? Yeah, and I think that's sort of the general rule is, you know, you use, uh, you know, whether it's complaining stuff that you're doing or in, uh, in the context of what I do, creating uh, intellectual property, if you're going to be doing that, you know, do it on your own time, use your own computers, and the same mm-hmm. probably applies to uh, commentary and criticism. I think the thing that bothers me about all these cases is, I mean, what is it with employers and, and, and whatnot? They got way too much spare time on their hands. Let people have an opinion for Pete's sakes. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw the infographic that I that I tagged from uh, from Mashable, but um, it's really depressing sort of the level of uh, uh, you can't call it censorship if it's done by uh, a, a commercial entity, but uh, you know the, the the degree to which the thought police are alive and well in 2011 in this country uh, is, I think, embarrassing. On that infographic showing where internet censorship is in the world on a on a, on a colored map, with the far left being no censorship and the far right right being pervasive censorship. You know, we're the U.S. is sort of left of center. We're, we're in the some censorship category, and uh, uh, you know, why is that? Why are why are we not in the in the no censorship category? That's one of the things that that bothers me. I think yep. from the co- the commercial or the corporate standpoint, it's all fear. You know, there's 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 always this concern that there there's going to be a some kind of lack of control or loss of control. So I think it's as simple as that. Just wanting to keep people under their thumbs so that um, you subject their will a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, any thoughts on this one? Censorship oh. related or otherwise? <laughs> Not much more uh, than than what uh, Eric and Evan have already said. It's uh, um, you, you always see that when uh, some, some companies uh, getting online for the first time, they, they get really restrictive uh, uh social media policies and it, this is just simply one more uh, analysis of it um i, I think the, the good that came out of this particular case was that uh this particular employee agreed as part of the settlement uh to revise the rules to be less restrictive um mm-hmm. uh I, i've always gotten a lot of uh good mileage out of um, the clue train manifesto and and other seminal works in in social media and um, number one rule is just simply to be authentic. Um, you know, be, be yourself, be, be human. Uh, even, even a corporate, even though they're not necessarily human, is, is act human-like. And that's by having a human face in your conversations. Yep. Always good advice. And we love invoking the Clue Train Manifesto whenever possible. It's sort <laughs> of the Bible of online communications. Um, and and uh, so this next story sort of violates that Bible, I think, a bit, um, at least for me from an annoyance standpoint. Uh, everyone know about Paperly? Everyone been impacted? Paper.li. By having that show up in your Twitter stream. And, and the way it shows up for people is uh, you see them as ats when uh, somebody has included you. And and Eric, since you uh, sent this to us, why don't you describe for anyone who hasn't um, seen Paperly or been annoyed by it, uh, how it actually works? Because I don't use it. It just sort of came my way and then I blocked it and I haven't seen it since. So um, tell, tell us what it is and how it works. Well, sort of to make an analogy, if you remember, you know, what sort of like a My Yahoo page or a My uh, Google, whatever mm-hmm. My Google uh, calls that, or in the in the Twitter world, if you're using something like TweetDeck, it's a uh, it's a it's a once daily uh, web based um, 
newspaper-like uh, interface of the people that you follow uh, on Twitter and sort of presents a nice uh, summary. So if you're not the type of person, I think like all of us on the, uh, on the podcast today who, uh, who check their uh, social networks multiple times per day, it might be nice for you to have a single place to go uh, and do that, and and ostensibly that's what paper.li, I have no idea how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, ostensibly that's what they what they do. But uh, the, the thing where, the, where it differs from uh, something like my Yahoo or a, or a TweetDeck um, is that this interface is, is public-facing, uh, and, and furthermore, obviously built into it by default are these auto-tweet uh, mechanisms. So, yeah, that's you know, the you'll issue, get- huh? aggregating content from someone you like as john is pointing out in uh engineer john from twit is pointing out in the chat room apparently he's following colleen formerly of twit um now of google and uh getting the information that she has put together every day and that it's great and useful and you know that's that's just fine but the, the business model here has been to alert people of its existence by if you are featured in somebody's paperly, um, sending them an at. And it's it's very, I, I think there's a way that they could have done it that wouldn't have been quite so um, heavy handed, you know, if it wasn't just a bot, if it was somehow more personalized, Um it might, and I think uh, fe- featured might even be too strong of a word. I think, you know, yeah. mentioned, it would even mm-hmm. be generous. In many instances, when I get uh, a notification that, hey, you've been mentioned in the spam bot daily or whatever it is, <laughs> uh, you know, there, right. I haven't, I haven't uh, you know, blogged anything or tweeted anything of, of significance in the previous 24 hours. And yet there it is, uh, there it is showing up. And, uh, you know, all it does to my, uh, to my stream is add, Add noise and not not add signal. And I, I've worked very hard to uh, to keep the signal to noise ratio high in my stream. So I've taken to calling people on it publicly, uh, and uh, going so far as to say you should follow, you should unfollow this person because they're using spam service paper.li, mm-hmm. um, and then blocking them, blocking them, and anybody who retweets it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the legalities of a service like this. This service strikes me as is kind of this in this layer of um, site that seems to be more and more common on the web these days, the e-how kind of universe, where it's aggregating a bunch of content from different sources. And sure, it might be useful, but it's not, you know, uh, the most definitive um, or the most deeply uh, delving kind of information source. It's, you know, they're being established because um, it's... uh, a good way to manipulate search and appear high in search results and um, make money. And I, I assume that the, that part of that is part of Paperly's business model in doing this. So um, there are a couple of legal concerns that I could see. Uh, one would be the aggregation question. Obviously, when you're pointing to um, other sites in just a link fashion, that's one thing, but uh, when you're aggregating and using a good deal or maybe all of the material that's being pointed to, they have copyright issues. And then also there's um, this name and likeness issue, a right of publicity issue. Um, it sort of appears to someone who's not real familiar with what's going on here technologically that the people within a paperly page um, are a part of that organization or, you know, writing for them or endorsing what they're doing. And really they're just being pulled in through 
um, automated means. Uh, Eric, thoughts on the legalities? Yeah, no, I think they've definitely got an issue there again because it's one thing if you're doing it on uh, uh, on a private-facing thing like iGoogle or my Yahoo or, or a tweet deck. I think it's another thing entirely when it's public-facing, uh, mm-hmm. like the paper.li or however the heck you pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it does, but again, you know, I, I don't really care so much about the fact that my um, social media content is uh, is distributed and aggregated. I sort of uh, uh, expect that. Um, you know, what I don't expect is is to be is to be spammed by all these different dailies, and it's and it's not just once or twice a day; uh, it's multiple times per day, and uh, it reminds me of the the first iteration of Plaxo when it came out. Uh, and you were getting dozens of emails saying, hey, I'm updating my address book. Um, and it was, and people, uh, you know, reacted negatively to that as, as well as they, they should because it, it just turned into, an, A, a spamming service, and B, uh, self-publicity. And that's what I see the main purpose behind these auto-tweets is, is for paper.li to be publicizing itself. And that's the mm-hmm. definition of spam. Right. Um, anyone want to take the counterpoint that uh, this is just another aggregation service and maybe they're a little aggressive in their marketing? Kevin? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Uh, put me in that role. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 my personal take is a little more along Eric's lines, uh, but you know, they, they certainly are you know, able to go out and uh, uh, you know, post that, that they have... Uh, new content and you know they can certainly post aggregate themselves um i i the the jeez hmm, this is really hard hard position for me to take is you know pro pro spam mm-hmm. uh it it, it all i'd say is it, it's certainly something that people when they signed up for 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 paperly they opted into this system i think they can opt out i think you can have your own paperly newspaper without auto spamming uh, uh-huh. I would certainly encourage people to uh, to do that to uh, turn off the auto notification feature. Um, not only for this, but just in general. Um, uh, I I I think of Twitter as something uh, to have a conversation with people about. It, it's it's certainly not a place where you know I would expect people to go and uh, you know get auto fed content. Um, to get to get another place to get spam, I get enough spam in my inbox. I, I don't need it in Twitter either. Right. Well, I certainly violate that because um, I use FriendFeed to route things into Twitter from my other activities. But I'm not, you know, adding people necessarily, or or um, when I do, I'm doing it as in a way to give credit. You know, as I go through and prepare for the show, for example, I'm bookmarking things in Delicious and those get fed into Twitter so people can see if they're interested, if they're following me, they don't have to follow me, uh, what we're going to talk about on the next week's show. So although that's an automated kind of thing, I would distinguish that from uh, what's going on here. Um, Evan, what do do you think about this whole layer of the web that is developing... um, to sort of leverage search and and try and grab people's uh, attention through search results. Um, to me, that seems like something that is good about the architecture of the web now and the sensibilities and the norms that are there. I put it under the heading of curation and community mm-hmm. building. You know, and that's those are concepts that you know have been floating around quite a bit in the last couple of years, particularly as you know this stage of Web two point 
you know, all of that stuff, all those buzzwords and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, th- there is a certain, you know, from a certain perspective that can be irritating and, you know, using, uh, you know, that sort of um, uh, glomming onto information that way and using it for self-serving purposes can be irritating and, and spammy and all of that stuff. You know, looking at, at paperly, um, you know, and I know this is a little bit different than the particular question that you, you've posed to me here. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not concerned in most instances uh, when there is stuff like paperly that comes out, because I recognize at the foundation of it, these notions of curation and community building and kind of making content something around which we can uh, have a community to be good things. Those those are good things. It's just when it is not well executed that um, it becomes irritating. At the same time, when it's not well executed, that usually means that it's not going to have much evolutionary success as it goes forward. If it's irritating and spammy or whatever, people aren't going to pay much attention to it and it's going to die off. With Paperly, I see myself mentioned in, you know, Twitter feeds. I, I, you know, at first I was puzzled, you know, what is this? I click through, I see, you know, kind of a really ugly layout. Um, And so I, you know, I quickly lose interest and I trust that if I'm developing that impression of it, then then others uh, may be as well. So, um, you know, leveraging a certain um, layer of of stuff on the Web uh, can be good in most instances. I'm not going to get too worried about, you know, the legalities of it all just because I think we should be more uh, liberal in our in our notions about these things. it's just, you know, if it's not well executed, let's not worry about it. Mm-hmm. It may just die its own death if uh, if enough people dislike the way it's being rolled out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, something Sooner that, the better. <laughs> yes. Something that does not uh, react too, too well or really um, change its attitude too much uh, based on public uh, likes or dislikes is uh, the National Security Association. And uh, what goes on under the Patriot Act. Evan, we talked about gag orders a couple of episodes ago. And let's see, who was our friend on Twitter who tipped me to this? JCS3 on Twitter said, check out this on the media story. And it was fascinating. It's in our show notes at delicious.com slash this weekend law slash 99. Links to everything we're talking about today are there. And uh, this is the full transcript of... Um, a segment called National Security Letters and Gag Orders from the excellent On the Media show from NPR. And uh, it is very illuminating as to this technique procedure that the NSA uses. Um, It serves these national security letters asking for information, in this case on um, an ISP, I guess... uh, The Internet Archive has famously received one, but very, very few of them, maybe just these two, have become public, even though hundreds of thousands of them have been uh, doled out over the years. About 50,000 of them um, served on people per year. And uh, what they are are these super secret requests for information, and they include in them language that uh, says not only must you comply, but you cannot tell anybody that you have received this request. You know, it doesn't elaborate on that. It just says, tell no one. Um, so 
you know, this particular person, Nicholas Merrill, who was interviewed here and uh, is the founder of the Calix Internet Access Corporation and the Calix Institute um, that is attempting to shed some light on this procedure. Um, he, he did not listen to the stricture and consulted a lawyer and um, uh, got civil rights attorneys involved and uh, was off to the races, um, hence the interview. But um, it's, it's all very interesting, especially the volume of these that get served. Uh, Evan, any thoughts in light of our previous gag order discussion? Yeah, I mean, I, I am mindful to always keep the overall analysis in the real context of understanding that it's important for investigations to be done in secrecy at times. Mm -hmm. But if there are 200,000 of these things going out in the course of a three-year period, you know, that is too much. It's really getting Orwellian at that point. And my concern, you know, just based on the pure volume of this is that that is overreaching. Uh, you know, each one of those cannot be uh, legitimate trails of Al Qaeda, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it, it really that it gets frightening to me when I hear that there are numbers like that, because that is just really a Gestapo kind of stuff that um, is, is gotten out of hand. Right. Uh, Kevin, have you ever encountered one of these things? And, and what would you do if a client came to you and said, I've gotten mm. this super secret letter? Yeah, goodness. Um, I, uh, I can honestly say I haven't personally received one, but even if I mm -hmm. did, I don't think I'd be able to tell you. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I agree with Evan. I think it's uh, uh, there's a lot of the Patriot Act that's uh, been written uh, for the point of view of uh, government and its its role in protecting people at uh, the expense of, of uh, liberties. And right. this is certainly one of them. And if, if they certainly have been used as much as they have, uh, over 190,000 is the last count, uh, then certainly um, then, then they're being overused. Yeah, it's it's uh, I was reading the story and prepping for the show against the backdrop of um, listening to um, Secretary of State Clinton's speech about Internet freedom and her point about uh, about how we, you know, make this balance between security and openness and the security measures, you know, here in the U.S. we can feel good about the fact that the security measures all are subject to the rule of law and appeal. But I think this is the kind of example of a thing that really isn't. Uh, Eric, any thoughts? Oh, I, I think that the, uh, the worst thing about the, the, the Patriot Act uh, is its name. I think, mm -hmm. it is, I think it is unpatriotic. And I think what we end up with as a result of all this is is not actual improved security, but what we get is security theater. Mm. Whether it's whether it's being put on by the performers at the NSA or the TSA or ICE, uh, I mean, there's far too many stories. And frankly, uh, you know, to echo what other uh, you know, folks have said. It sounds like a story that's coming from another country in another time. It doesn't sound like a story that's coming from uh, the United States in, in 2011. So I hope that uh, I hope in my lifetime we see the repeal of the Patriot Act. But I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the other folks not holding their breaths are the MPAA, their latest target. Uh, having, you know, had the RIAA go after sites like Grokster. Um, some years ago, seems that the the lockering sites out there are coming under fire now because it's easy to um, 
upload and share files that way. Um, as an alternative to P2P, we saw RapidShare have litigation uh, a few months back. Um, now we've got Hotfile, and uh, they're particularly in the sites here because uh, they apparently have an incentive program in place where, you know, if you're getting a lot of downloads from the material that you've, um, that you're sharing through their system, then uh, I'm not sure if you, I think you get paid or you get some sort of reward uh, for doing that. Um, so they point to that to say, aha, you know, the only way you're going to be able to really um, exploit that incentive program is to upload copyrighted material. That's a bit of a leap, don't you think, Kevin? Well, um, you know, the, um, uh, I'm sorry, I, I was actually uh, uh, looking down at my notes when you uh, asked mm -hmm. me the question. I, can, you, can you repeat the question? Sure. I'm, I'm saying that uh, the MPAA is sort of making the assumption that if you're going to be um, compensated, the incentives are in place to have you um, share material that's going to be downloaded a lot, that of course mm -hmm. you're going to be um, uploading unlicensed, unauthorized, copyrighted material to take advantage oh, of those right. incentives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that so, something so sorry, like Hotfile that. in particular, because they have this kind of a measure and step, that they're they're going to be subject to being pulled down, you know, under the same reasoning as Crockster was a few years back. Um, do, you know, do you buy that? I think there's a lot of uh, uh, opportunity to share things that would have, you know, a lot of traction that uh, would not be um, something the MPAA should be concerned about. Well, I, I think there are, there are so, so certainly files that, that could have over a thousand downloads that uh, would be. Uh, uh, free from from concern from the MPAA, that's certainly mm -hmm. true. Um, but uh, uh, if you look at uh, things like uh, Hollywood movies, uh, if they're being shared on that particular, that certainly would be an easy win and an easy way for somebody using that system to get to get money uh, would be to uh, regularly upload things where you can get lots and lots and lots of 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 money from from Hotfile. And mm -hmm. so I can certainly see see the allegation uh, whether that that is true, I think would only come out during discovery when they get, uh, uh, you know, the company turnover records over, you know, just what, which files did you actually pay out for? Um, uh, but it's, it's certainly a headline leading uh, claim made in their complaint. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, Evan, we're getting into this world of cloud computing and everybody wanting to be able to um, have things out there and available to share and download. There are tons and tons of sites that uh, facilitate that these days. It's a very viable business model for folks. Um, do you think that uh, that's going to go away because the MPAA is looking them at, looking at them as the next wave of P2P? No, of, of course not. And I don't think the mm -hmm. MPAA is going to see much success in this case against Hotfile. I mean, I'm, I'm really surprised that they're that they're doing it, especially with the lack of success that Viacom had with 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 YouTube. Um, if you go to the Hotfile site, you know, it it certainly uh, appears to be legitimate. I trust that it is uh, legitimate. There's nothing, you know, flashy. There's no like um, it doesn't use the HTML blink tag or anything like that. Um, <laughs> Thank so, you. <laughs> it uh and it's very much um you know all dmca uh very much you know very much it has the dmca front and center if you you know right there on mm -hmm. the home page 
uh, you click on, you know, the intellectual property policy and it's, you know, the first thing out of their mouth is we are a service provider under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And so given the, you know, the analysis that uh, we got from the court in the YouTube uh, Viacom case, you know, there's that's uh, that provides a lot of protection. And, you know, even if there is, you know, going to this whole notion of making money off of the users, making money off of all of this stuff, there's going to be has to be a lot more uh, for, you know, going on there. Um, then uh, it has to be more than that to to satisfy that Grokster inducement uh, level because in Grokster, as we've discussed before, that that was very much based on the facts of how they were marketing the stuff. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 I just don't see it here. So to think that this could somehow uh, chill a uh, real the the entire fundamental way that we are thinking about computing these days, you know, being in the cloud. I, I just even hate saying that anymore. It's almost become so, it's not cliche, but you know what I mean? Everything, there's this, the advent of cloud computing and all that stuff. Sure. Um, there, there's, there's no reason to think that something like this, a challenge by the MPAA, is going to, to diminish that uh, progress at all. Right. Uh, Eric, any different take on this? Or are you right in line with Evan? No, I, I agree. I don't think the mm-hmm. uh, MPAA is going to be able to sue itself uh, into uh, um, into profitability or or, uh, or, or relevancy. Um, and I think that uh, they've been trying to do this along with the RIAA for uh, for years. I, I did look at the hot file side. I didn't see anything about uh, incentives. Maybe they do offer incentives. That's probably a bad idea um, if they did offer them. Um, mm-hmm. But just because there is incentives doesn't mean there, that there is uh, that there is copying. But again, you know, the bigger issue is, uh, you know, does it matter if all this copying is is going on? You know, does it matter? You know, broadcast television and and broadcast radio uh, put content on the airways for free, and have been doing that for decades, and there isn't any evidence that that is uh, hurting sales. It acts as marketing uh, that helps sales. And the leap that the uh, MPAA and the RAA would have us make is that all this, every single copy that's out there represents a lost sale. And it's simply not true. And I don't know how many more years it's going to take for them to figure it out that it's not true. But what the MPAA and the RIAA need is they need new leadership. And they need a new business model. And they needed it 15 years ago because we're half a generation into it. And they still haven't figured it out. All righty. Well, with that, I think it's time to move to our tip of the week. And our tip of the week this week is if you are someone whose ethics are very much bound up with your job description, such as a judge or a teacher, and I'm sure we could come up with other examples your approach towards social media has to be completely different than somebody else's uh, average run-of-the-mill person. And, and I question whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um, on a societal basis, but it's just a reality. And uh, this tip flows from the fact that uh, there was a teacher whose private Facebook page, um, I saw the story on CBS Uh, the excellent CBS Sunday morning show, um, whose private Facebook page had some pictures of her traveling in Europe. And uh, who knows, she must have been in Germany or some such place. And in one hand, she had a mug of beer. And in the other hand, she had a glass of wine and a big smile on her face. And, you know, she's just off on her summer travel somewhere. Um, And this was uh, 
she had very properly locked down her Facebook settings so that only her trusted friends could see her photographs and postings and things. But it's just a, an object lesson in the fact that even when that is the case, um, one of the people that she had actually approved to see this material must have shared it with somebody who uh, was not. And her school district, her principal got an anonymous letter saying, you know, your school has a very strict policy about uh, what teachers should or should not be putting online and the image they should present. And here's what this teacher did. And she was fired. And, uh, you know, she's looking into legal action about all that and what have you. But uh, the fact is, it's a it's a it's some very dangerous ground out there if um, you're someone whose public image is uh, subject to attack quite so easily. Any quick thoughts about this uh, story before, before we move on to our resource of the week, Evan? Um, you know, it's just unfortunate to see uh, school administrators overreaching, which is what they did here. You know, the, mm -hmm. the societal norms in that community, I think, just didn't really uh, mesh up with what this gal wanted to do and what she was perfectly entitled to do. Right. So for all the details on that, do go to our show notes. I'm just sort of glossing over that one uh, uh, very quickly here at the end of the show. Um, and I do want to get to, to our resource of the week because it's pretty interesting and interesting use of the web. Uh, it is truvely or truvely, T-R-U-V-E-L-I.org. Um, it is a, for lack of a better term, crowdsourced dispute resolution, online crowdsourced dispute resolution. So what they're doing is a sort of... Um, disintermediating the entire legal system as a lot of private judging and private dispute resolution does. But uh, this model struck me as pretty interesting because what they do is they get people from all over the world to sign up to act as judge or jurors um, on their site. And uh, if you have a dispute with someone and everybody agrees, you can go there and have um, these disinterested parties, not from your com community, uh, resolve your dispute in a binding way. And they have an escrow function so that, uh, you know, if there's money at stake, the money can be escrowed and then distributed out by the site to the party who wins the dispute. Um, so it's pretty interesting. I've never seen anything quite like this. And I encourage you to check out truvely.org. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of This Week in Law. Thanks so much, Kevin Thompson, for joining us again. Well, thank you, Denise. It's uh, always a pleasure to be on. Uh, folks, you can find Kevin at cyberlawcentral.com, and he is Cyberlaw on Twitter. We'll see you again soon, I hope. Thank you. Also, Eric, wonderful to chat with you again for an hour this morning. Thanks, Denise. Glad to be here. Go Sox. Go Sox. Yes, <laughs> lean to one side so we can see your hat. There it is. There it is. And, the, and I got, the, I got the, the, win the winter one here, here too. There, there we go. There we go. So um, Eric is Eric J. Heels on Twitter and ericjheels.com. And uh, obviously we will uh, be watching the baseball season with great anticipation. <laughs> and we'll have, yes. And Evan Brown, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. Wonderful time. Always good to talk with my buddies, Eric and, and Kevin. Good to, yes. good to, good to participate here. Nice good. chat. Yes. It's wonderful. And uh, folks, go find Evan at internetcases.com and internetcases on Twitter, where he always has 
good um, three character self-identifying <laughs> things to contribute to the discourse. And, yes, always, uh, always up for concision. Yes. And thanks so much for uh, joining us again for This Week in Law. And if you're listening live, very shortly, we're going to go right into our 100th episode of Twill. So um, if you are a fan or uh, listening for the first time, we do record live on Fridays at 11 o'clock Pacific, 1900 UTC at live.twit.tv. Join us there. And uh, between the shows, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw where we post pre-show questions and love getting your feedback on the things that we're going to talk about. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks, Denise. Bye-bye.